There is a lot that God's doing in our church. And for the next four weeks, what we've asked as part of our teaching team to kind of do some of the greatest hits through scripture, passages that are emboldened on our heart, things that we've been chewing on for a while, something that we've been wanting to share. And uh, uh, sometimes when we used to do these greatest hits back in the day in the old churches, they used to do preach-offs. Nobody's trying to do a preach-off. We're just trying to get in and share a little bit of encouragement. And uh, I hope for the next four weeks that you are encouraged and empowered uh, to live more like who God's created you to be. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 22, that's where we're going to find ourselves. Today I want to talk to you about love. And love is one of those uh, conversations that show up a lot of different places, right? And when we're young, we really start to think that we understand what love is, Right? We begin to uh, think that we've got it figured out, third and fourth grade. Maybe that's the first time we get those little butterflies, and so we write on a note, you know, do you like me, I like you, check yes or no, or I'm still thinking about it, or whatever you put on your letter to make sure you could kind of get a feel what was going on. I moved around a lot as a kid, and so relationships for me became pretty crucial because every time I moved, I had to make new friends. And in that challenge, the, the uncomfortable thing was this. The more that we began to move, the more I had to learn who people were, and uh, I, I had to try to make first impressions very, very quickly. And so uh, I moved to a place called Shelbyville, Missouri. And when I did, uh, I was only there from third grade to fifth grade. And fifth grade, my parents came to me and said, hey, we're going to move. And so my parents set me up that morning and said, hey, would you just be prepared? Say goodbye to your friends, your teachers, say all your goodbyes, because the, the truck's going to be ready to be loaded and we're going to be out of here. Okay. So I go throughout my day and I say goodbye to all my friends and whatnot. And on the, at the end of school, everybody's loading up. I'm giving high fives. I'm saying goodbye to my teachers. And um, all the buses line up front in the front of our elementary school at the time because uh, everybody loaded the school buses out front. And then all the street walkers went out and walked home. And I, I was a street walker. But there were two people in my elementary school that I was really close to. I was starting to be a little, uh, a little friendly with a gal named Melissa. And her best friend name was Don. And the two of the gals, they, they'd show up and they'd play sports with all the rest of us guys. They'd throw the football, they'd play basketball, play kickball, whatever we played. They hung out with us. And, uh, you know, back in fifth grade, I had this novel idea. I thought, you know, maybe Melissa was the one. Obviously, clearly she's not. I'm happily married now, you know. But uh, her best friend, Don, was always a part of our conversations and relationship. But Don was really never more than just kind of a a sidekick, a friend, somebody who would kind of be her wing person to hang out with her. So on our way home, everybody's loading up in their buses. Melissa gets in her bus. I say my goodbyes, and then I'm off. I'm heading home and uh, trying to keep it together and think about how my life's about ready to change. And all of a sudden, I hear this, goodbye, Danny. And I turn around, and Dawn has run off her bus because we did not say goodbye. And she's like, bye, Danny. And I said, bye, Dawn. And she says, I'll miss you. And I said, I'll miss you. And then she says, I love you. And I said, I love you. Like, what did I just commit to, right? You know? It's like, uh, I don't know that I'll ever see this guy again. Thank goodness uh, we never saw each other again. I went through puberty fine, and I'm not held responsible for any of that uh, fifth grade commitment that I made. But as an elementary student, you tend to think that you understand what love is. Junior high, it began to heat up a little bit more. And, um, you know, I, I was a big romantic, you know, and I, I, I'm not going to share anything this morning about my love life in high school because I just saw my wife sitting over there and I want to make sure it's, no, we're fine with this. But I want to share with you my favorite love story um, of some high school students. Now, I was in youth ministry for a long time, so this is, this is going back before some of the students in the room were even born, okay? So this is like, it's in color, it's just really a long time ago, okay? So it's about 1999, 
It's prom at Potomac Armstrong High School, okay? Her name is Jessica. She goes by Jessie. She's a sweet gal. Lives in the area. Goes to our church. She's got a boyfriend named Ted. We called him Big Ted because even as a sophomore, he could bench 300 pounds. Now he's a grown man and benches over 400 pounds and is a Champaign County uh, sheriff. He's a big boy. We still call him Big Ted. Well, Big Ted went to Bismarck High School. They're rivals, but they fell in love. It's kind of like West Side Story, only it's uh, Vermillion County. You know what I'm saying? A little bit less expensive and uh, not as many songs. Anyway, uh, so they're dating. They get together. He goes to prom with her, and uh, they show up. And they're concerned about how their peers are going to respond to them, you know, because he's from the rival and she's from hometown. And they walk in. They look magnificent. They're just a gorgeous couple. They come in. Nobody bothers him because he's Big Ted. Who's going to mess with Big Ted? And uh, they kind of dance and they have this moment together. Well, the night, night goes on and on and on. And it's called Under the Stars. So you can imagine you walk into this, this gymnasium and it's decorated with all sorts of colors and you can see all the Armstrong Potomac colors around the gym, but hanging from the ceiling are these paper mache stars and a moon and the music is playing and everybody's just in love. You know what I'm saying? Well, they dance the night away, and they're caught in this late embrace, and the announcements are being made that this is the last song, and the night's about to end, and they're one of the last few couples still on the dance floor together. And as the song is playing, and they're swaying, he looks into her eyes, he looks up, he sees the stars, he sees the moon, and he looks at her, and he says, if I could give you the moon and stars, and he reaches up, pulls it from the ceiling, he says, I would. That's serious game there, boys, isn't it? That's good. That's good. Some of you are looking at your spouses right now going, we should pick it up a little bit on our romance department. I wouldn't mind a paper mache. You know, so bring home a paper mache and pinata. Maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. Ted and Jesse are still together. They got great family, got great kids. But I think they'd tell you, just like I'd tell you, we think we know what love is as a friendship. We think we know what love is as a romance. But oftentimes when we get into adults, we really start feeling, experiencing, and understanding what true love is really about. And as Christians, we have yet to even talk about unconditional love, right? The kind of love that God has for us, even though as Christians, we embrace this kind of love as being the foundation of who we are understanding that we are the kind of people that are loved unconditionally by God because this is God's nature, to love us because he has created us in his image. And so today I want to talk to you about that kind of love. Because the more we try and rationalize love, the more we try and reason about love, the more we think we understand about love, the more and more we recognize that we cannot quite comprehend the vastness or the greatness of God's love for us. And so today I want you to understand this, that loving like Jesus is to love beyond reason. Loving like Jesus is to love beyond reason. It's to love beyond the way that you feel. It's to love beyond the things that you justify. It's to love beyond the uh, normal parameters of how everybody else treats everybody else. And it's a challenging love. Jesus was confronted on this. He was uh, teaching one day, as he often was. And teachers of Jesus' day often handled it in different dynamics, but they would teach publicly, sometimes in the marketplace and sometimes out on the hillside, depending on partly the crowds and the environment, what's going on. And what would happen is 
these teachers would set up shop. They'd begin to bring up an idea in front of others, and people would then begin to interact, ask questions, and then validate somehow whether that was something they believed in, whether they were a teacher worth following, and then whether they would surrender their, their life or their way of living to a teacher like Jesus. Oftentimes what would happen, though, in public settings, there would be a teacher over here or maybe a teacher over there. And those that were kind of students of those teachers, when they wanted to wrestle with issues differently, they would walk over to another teacher and they would kind of say, well, what do you say about this? What do you think about this? And they would use this open conversation dialogue to kind of measure the merit of a teacher. And that's what happens in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has been teaching and an expert of the law walks up to him to ask a question. Now, as an expert of the law, what we're talking about, while we would use the phrase lawyer or attorney, in a Hebrew context, what we're understanding is this is someone who's mastered the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the Torah, that he understands the laws, the relationship, the dynamic of what God has intended for the nation of Israel and the relationship that they should have together to be a blessing for all of the world. And so this expert of the law, he walks up and he begins to ask this question. He says, of all the commandments, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And this is where Jesus begins. Jesus says this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, and all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, it should be no surprise to anyone who's in the audience of the day that Jesus answers with that. What he has just started with, this first and greatest command to love God with all that we are, is what we call the Shema in Hebrew tradition. It was the value, the foundation of every household. That in Deuteronomy 6, there's literally this challenge that we should love God with all that we are, but we should not, should not only just say that and believe that, but in our households, we should, we should make it like jewelry and put it on our arms or on our foreheads, or we should put it over our doorposts or on our walls, but we should, we should talk about it when we're coming and going, when we're walking along the roadside, when we're hanging out as our family. The point of Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema was make the value of loving God above everything else the priority of your household, because this is the foundation of love for a home to be built on loving God above everything else. And the second commandment that he uses, they're both interconnected, is a passage out of Leviticus, where their understanding about how to value your neighbors, how to speak about them, how to honor them in the way that you live and you love. And so Jesus puts them all together and he says, hey, beyond the Ten Commandments, beyond every ritual law and everything that you know in the first five books, if you learn how to love God with all that you are and learn how to honor that love by loving people the way God would, everything's wrapped up there. That's it. And so sometimes we want to put it on a t-shirt or a coffee mug and we say, love God, love people. It's a nice little slogan. But the truth of the matter was, it's the very foundation that Jesus grew up in. And so for us as Christians, we go, okay, I, I get that. I understand that. But he goes beyond because this expert of law begins to press into him. What's interesting is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books of the New Testament, actually share this story that's about to be unpacked. All three of them describe this expert of the law coming to Jesus and pressing into him and have this moment where there's this dialogue that goes on. Matthew starts with helping this understanding of this is what everything's about and this is what everything hangs on is loving God and loving people. Well, Mark takes a little bit of a different direction. Mark begins to press in and there's a little bit of a dialogue between Jesus and this expert of the law. 
And literally, the expert of law repeats back to him. He says, yeah, you, you've answered correctly, Jesus. You know what you're talking about. Loving God, loving people. God loves that more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've answered correctly. And Jesus literally looks at him. He says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus revalidates what this guy's trying to validate in Jesus, but pushes it a little bit forward. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What does he mean? Well, commentators will tell you this. There could be a couple of different meetings, two sides to this coin. One is you know what it means to love God, but you don't understand what it means to, to love God. Meaning you know the right answer to say, but I'm not sure you really live in love the way you know it's supposed to be done. Or maybe we put it in just kind of a cliche. You're in the ballpark, but you're not on the field. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is kind of saying, hey, I, I, I understand that we're, we're having a dialogue here. You're, you're validating me. I'm validating you. Uh, you're not far off. You're, you're starting to get it, but are you living it? The other side of the coin would be this, that Jesus is literally drawing a line in the sand and saying, hey, you have longed for a Messiah. You have longed for one that would give sight to the blind, bring life to those who are dead, that would free the captive and enslaved. This day is here. The kingdom is literally not far from you. That day is now here, and you are within proximity of that reality showing up in everywhere around your world. Either side of the coin, what it's compelling for us is, do we really understand and live this life of love? And what do we do with Jesus when he presses that into our lives and says, this is what it's about? Do we embrace it? Do we embrace a life of love like this? Well, Luke, being the great descriptor that he is, he goes even into greater detail. He, he begins to dialogue. He, Jesus is kind of pressing into this expert of the law, and he just says, well, what do you say? How do you read it? And so the expert of the law uh, reiterates, it's to love God, it's to love people, it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, it's, it's better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And, and Jesus says this phrase, well, if you do this, you will live. Do this and you will live. Now, this statement is not, in English, it can sound kind of harsh. It's not like Jesus is saying, if you don't do this, I'll kill you on the spot. That's, that, that would be funny. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But that's not what Jesus, Jesus is not trying to scare the Jesus in him. You know what I'm saying? He's not trying to make him love people. But Jesus is trying to say, if you do this, this is what life is really about. If you want life beyond anything you've experienced before, learn to love people. Now, some of us go, well, that makes sense. I mean, we've been in love. We've been in relationships. And we know that love is infectious and contagious, especially when it's with a great friend or with, a, with, with somebody that we love. But Jesus is talking beyond the emotional, romantic, hey, we're best buds. Jesus is talking about a love that can endure and persevere and go through hardship and take betrayal and can, can look people in the face when they've reacted unjustly against people. And so we go, this, this, this is heading in a direction I may not be comfortable with. It's, it's a love beyond reason. So Jesus, sensing the crowd, in Luke, what he does is he actually opens up this conversation for a parable. He uses the moment to tell an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, which was often a tactic for the, day, for the teachers of the day, so that people could relate with what they were trying to press in. And so Jesus starts this story like this. He says, there's a man who's walking from Jerusalem 
to Jericho. Now, everyone within hearing of this conversation knows this road. This road has a reputation. Now, it's not something you're going to find in the travel brochure, but this road from Jerusalem to Jericho had the nickname, the Bloody Way, right? Nobody's signing up for that at spring break, right? You know, okay, kids, let's go to the Bloody Way. It sounds like it'd be a great time for us, right? The reality is it was a road that was throughout mountainous terrain or through rugged terrain where there were cracks and crevices and brush and thieves and robbers could hide very easily. And so the first thing they hear is, what is this guy doing on this road and why is he traveling by himself? Because everybody knows that's the side of town. When you pull up to the light, you automatically put your elbow on your lock and make sure it's down. You understand what I'm saying? And so they begin this story, a man on the wrong road, wrong place, the wrong time, by himself. And Jesus says, and he got jumped. He got robbed. He got beaten. He got stripped of his clothes. He's left for half dead, half naked, and he's just there. And so then Jesus enters the new conversation. Suddenly, we'll say it in our terms, a senior pastor comes by. Senior pastor comes down the road and he sees this man broken and hurting and bleeding and he goes, man, I just got this new shirt from uh, J.C. Penney and I've got to go meet with some members of the church. They're really upset about some things. I really need to go fix that. So the senior pastor ignores the man and goes off to take care of something else. Then the youth pastor comes by and he's been on a long trip on a mission trip all summer. And so he's starving, he's hungry, and he remembers that the Pizza Hut buffet closes in 30 minutes. And so he's meeting some friends. So he's like, I don't have time for this. I've only got so much money and I'm starving. And so he ditches the person who's hurting to go care for his own needs. Now, if you know this story out of Luke, those two characters are actually religious leaders of the day. People who could probably justify why they don't reach out and serve. Maybe they're fearful for their lives or some sort of ceremonial law that may disqualify them. But the point would be that everyone in the audience who's of Hebrew descent, knows that when these stories happen, our people do the right thing, right? Church people are supposed to love other people. Church people are supposed to step out. People who love God respond in these things, but the natural heroes of the day do nada. They don't help. And so there's this tension building. Wrong per person at the wrong place, wrong time. People who should help some of our people to help our people don't help our people. And then Jesus says this. But a Samaritan sees them and gets off his donkey, cares for the person, oils and wine, uh, takes care of his bandages, uh, wounds and needs, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a hotel, not like a Holiday Inn Express, but like a, a hotel that does hospital care and, and does food and he literally says, hey, here's my wallet. I'll put this down, but if there's any more expenses, please let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the rest when I come back through town. Now, that story for us is usually a, we should be the good Samaritan. We should serve people. But here's what I need to put this in your crawl about today, okay? When Jesus makes the statement that a priest, a Levite, a senior pastor, a youth pastor, ignore the hurting on the side... Jesus would be saying something like, well, in their day, being a Samaritan and being a, a Jew were tensions of politics, ethnicity, religious background. 
And so I just, wanna, I just want you to squarely have you put yourself in whatever political alliance you feel like you fall in today. Any spiritual tension that you fall into today. And say, if you were to polarize that situation and you would point the finger to say, those people don't get in. Those people aren't God's people. That's who Jesus is trying to tell you today. That's your good Samaritan. It should be uncomfortable. Oftentimes we read that passage and we just flow through it, but there is a tension point that they go, they should have helped, they should have helped. We're not helping who we should help. And if they're not helping and he's not helping and we're not helping, but they're helping, then what is Jesus saying? Because Jesus has just said, to help someone, like this is, this is where life is found. To sacrifice, to give of yourself, to go above and beyond. This is what it looks like. And so Jesus, Jesus looks, like, looks at, the, at the expert. And he just asks them this question, why don't, why don't you just tell me? Who is the neighbor? Who is the one that acted in a way that showed love? And here's what the expert of law says. He says this. Expert of law replied, the one who had mercy on him. That's what it looks like to love like Jesus to be a person of mercy to people who are hurting. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, it's a love beyond reason. Because let's be honest, you can't watch the news and not feel polarized, right? You fall on one side or the other. And I, and I hear it on Facebook. I hear it in the hallways. People pointing fingers back at what the church should do or the church should be or this is right and this is wrong. And we, we, I just hear it constantly. And Jesus says, you know what? It's, it's to have mercy. It's to have mercy on people who are hurting. That's what it means to love like him. John doesn't say anything about this passage. But at this point, you begin to think about, well, what are some of the just crazy jacked up things that Jesus has said at this point, right? Remember that time that Jesus was talking about people who are against you or hurt you or persecute you? Jesus said, well, I want you to turn the other cheek. I don't want you to be a person of retaliation. Jesus said things like, uh, go the extra mile. If, if somebody asks you to walk, walk one mile, walk two miles. If somebody needs your coat, give them, your, give them your, your wardrobe if you need to to help them out, right? Jesus says, go, go above and beyond. Jesus says this, love your enemies, Bless those who curse or persecute you. It's a love beyond reason. And many of us would say, okay, Danny, I get that. I get that we're supposed to love radically, but come on now, that's Jesus, he's God. Exactly, he is God. And when we gave our lives to Christ, what we said is more of you and less of me. God, not just for the forgiveness of sins, not just for life everlasting, but God, create in me your heart, your mind, your will, your way. And so God, when it comes to Friday night football games, don't let me speak about the other team the way I used to. Don't let me barrage my children the way I used to. Don't let me isolate and insulate myself at work. Don't let me hold the grudge I do against my ex. Don't let me... You know where I'm going? You hearing what I'm saying? Because this is what Jesus is trying to talk about when he says, love. Learning to love those who have been most difficult. John doesn't ignore this passage, but he, he actually takes us to a point in John chapter 13 where Jesus is now gathered around with his disciples, his closest students. And he's in a moment of 
of service. He's actually on his hands and knees. He's washing, Jesus, washing people's feet. He's taking the place of the servant in the room to care for them because nobody was caring for each other. And he's inviting them to understand this is the will, this is the way of Jesus. To roll up your sleeves and sometimes do the dirty stuff. But on this night, they're celebrating this, this Hebrew tradition of how God saved them. And Jesus takes a posture of service. And then he says this to them. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By, everyone, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So Jesus has been teaching, okay, from the foundation of who we are, we are to love God with all that we are. And if you were to summarize all the law and the prophets, we would say that it boils down to loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourself, Right? But if you want to summarize those two, here's what we want to bring it together on. Love as I love you. Love like Jesus. Love as I have loved you. Because here's what's going to happen. If you learn to love the way I love you, the world will know what love truly is. It'll be the litmus test. You want to know what a, a disciple of Jesus looks like? Somebody who loves like Jesus not better than your Eagle Scout, not better than your neighbor, not better than the guy who you lost some dollars to playing pool with. I mean, learning to love like Jesus is the standard and is the only standard for anyone who says, we have given our lives to Jesus. Teach me, Jesus, to love like you. Two chapters later, after he's done some teaching about how we're to live in life with him, he brings this back up, saying this new command I give you, Love as I have loved you. But then he says this, this verse, this verse. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for another. That's out of bounds. That's too far. Isn't it? Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for another. And frankly, this is the point in our walk with Jesus where we just say, oh, thank you for your forgiveness of sins. Thank you for a life everlasting. Thank you for accepting me when I could not accept myself. Thank you for, rest I mean, we just go into this great moment of gratitude. But the love that's given should be reciprocated, not only back to God, but it should show up as evidence that your life is now being changed by that love. Paul took that idea of love one another, and he built on it. Paul wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and he begins to ask some questions and challenging about what would the church look like? What would it look like as people if we began to love like Jesus? There's a question that we've been running around with in our staff and just as people, it just a question that I think begins to level the playing field that anytime we're in a moment where life is too hard or too difficult, and we wrestle with what, this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Because let's be honest, when we read this stuff from Jesus about greater love has no man than this, we begin to, we begin to push back. We say, but Jesus, or, or people, you, you don't know my mistakes, you don't know my past, you don't know my anger, you don't know my addictions, you don't know my woundedness, my hurt, my malice, my depression, whatever. And what I would say is, no, I, I, I don't know. But I do know a Jesus that was falsely accused and blamed, held responsible for other people's actions. I know a Jesus 
that was betrayed, beat down, mocked, and ridiculed by even those that he loved. And he still gave his life. So what does love require of us? Paul would say it this way. It's to accept one another, bear with one another, care for one another, carry one another's burdens, encourage one another, forgive one another, restore one another, submit to one another. This is what the people of God look like. This is how the people of God function when their desire to love is beyond friendship and romance and it is built on the character of Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great to be a part of a church like that? In many ways, we are that church, becoming our church. But the truth of the matter is, the standard by which Jesus says we'd be known as his followers is different than often by how we're known. We're known for our location. We're known for our playground. We're known for our kids' area, kids' ministry, our music, our preaching. Wouldn't it be great that the only thing that was ever said of us was that we loved and loved like Jesus. Let's move to our time of response. A little over a year ago, we updated our website and we uh, decided we were going to put some slogans together, some thoughts together, and this message was birthed well before I was even here in some ways. This phrase, love beyond reason, has just been racked in my mind for a long time, and we thought that maybe this, this will start being something we think about. But the reality is none of us wake up knowing how to love beyond reason. It's a long journey. And some of us right now, maybe we're holding some grudges. Maybe we despise certain types of people or certain people in general. Maybe our callousness keeps us from embracing forgiveness or restoration with others. But I remember the first time that uh, I had a crisis of faith when it came to love. Some of you know that I'm an adoptive father. It's been a privilege and it's been a challenge to be a dad who's chosen to adopt. We started in foster care. That's what we thought we were going to do. And as we got in the process, we knew that God was calling us to, to adopt. And my two oldest sons are adopted. We went to a court hearing one day where we believed that the parents were going to actually have their rights terminated. And so we, uh, we headed into that courthouse in Danville, Illinois, and we went up to the third story. And up in the, balcony, or up in the, up in the hallway, we're all gathered around, and uh, I could see my son's siblings. I could see their foster families and us. They had their attorneys. We had our attorney. And there's a gal sitting off in the distance on a bench by herself. 
There's a man off in another corner with what seems to be my son's birth grandparents. And I realize that the court hearing we we're going to go into, we, we didn't expect to be this close. We didn't expect to run into anybody. My, my, my son was not with me. He didn't see him or anything like that. But I can only say what I felt on that day. You know, I've gotten to the point now where I understand that uh, no dad is perfect because I know how much I fail. But in my mid-20s, you know, I thought I knew how much I knew about love and I knew what was completely right or wrong or good or bad. And so when I looked up and I saw this man looking at me, everything about my body lurched forward in anger and frustration. And I realized he wasn't just looking at me. He was contemplating whether he was going to come over towards me. And I just thought, oh, dear Jesus, he's going he's gonna to introduce himself. I did not have a Christian thought in the first step that he took towards me. It's not fair what either of my boys ever should have had to gone through. But there was some injustice and unfairness even in my own journey as a dad. I've, I've not been perfect. But I remember just literally saying something like, dear Jesus, help me. Because the emotions in me and what I wanted to do to the man who was going to step towards me was not going to be good. I wish I could say that, you know, the heavens opened and the, the Holy Spirit moved on me and a word from God came from me and there was restoration and people got baptized and 4,000 people came to... No, I was just like, please, dear Jesus, keep it together for me because I'm about to lose it. And he walked up to me and he stuck his hand out. And so I stuck mine out. And he grabbed my hand and he said, you must be his foster parents. And my response was, you must be the guy who has the dog. Because the only thing that God told me in that moment was, remember that story your son has about how much he loves his dog? So those were my first words. I wish I could have said, thanks for the privilege to raise your boy. I wish I could have said, hey, I, I know life isn't always fair and we don't always make the right choices. But I will tell you that man looked with me, looked at me in the eye with dignity. And he shook my hand. And I just thought, without Jesus, I couldn't do this. Because that's what Jesus has done for all of us, hasn't he? He knows our wrongdoings. He knows our rebellion. He knows the violence we've had inside of our hearts towards him around this world. He knows the blame and the harshness and the brokenness and all the rebellion and blaming that we do in our lives. And he stuck out his hand and looked us in the eye and loved us with his dignity and said, I got it. I'll take that. 
Let's do this together. Friends, we live in a world that needs evidence that God is real. We live in a world that wants to rationalize, parse, and try and put into a box who God is. And Jesus gave us one challenge, to break every box, to blow every mind, to destroy every stronghold, and it's called love. Loving like him. It's a love beyond reason, and it doesn't make sense. So the next time you hit that wall and you know that you should love, you should hold the tongue, you should forgive your spouse, you should reconcile a relationship, you should drop everything to help someone else carry their burden, you should step out of the way to care for someone in need, you should submit to help serve someone else, you should restore, whenever you hit that wall and you begin to think of all the reasons why we shouldn't, can't, nobody else is, would we stop and say, Jesus, what is love, your love, require of me? I'm going to ask you to stand quickly, if you would. And I want to read a passage out of 1 Corinthians 13, and I want you to read it with me. It's actually a passage that many of us, we read at weddings. Because we say, this is the foundation of love, and this is what a marriage should look like, and that's a great application, but the it was written to a church to say, this is what Jesus' love looks like. And when it's fully expressed in the local church, this is what it looks like in his body and his people. And this is what we should be living when we're looking at a standard for love. This is love embodied. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians 13. It says this, let's read it. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails. What if we learn to love like that? In just a moment, people are going to come forward and they're going to pray as the musical play and people begin to sing. Others of us will go to a, a station, six of them around the room where there's candles and there's, a, there's some bread and there's some juice and we're reminded to eat the bread and drink the juice because Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And it's an open invitation for all of us to come who celebrate that death, burial, and resurrection to say, it is his death, it is his burial, his resurrection, his love that paid our price. And several of us will pause and use the Give app or go to the Give and Respond boxes to give back today or place a connection card in to ask for prayer, to make a decision of faith. But what if as a church, love beyond reason was not simply a slogan or a phrase, but what if that's who we became? 
people who love like Jesus. A love that defies all rationale, human philosophy, or evidence against that there may not be a God. May we be that church. May we love beyond reason.